We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. Mm. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute uh, minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Now, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the darkened hour. In 1994, the Pashtun-dominated Taliban came to power, establishing what they called the purest Islamic state on earth. There has even been accusations that the U.S. helped create and support the Taliban from the very beginning. The unicorn of the American, they wanted to have gas and oil from Central Asian republics to go through Afghanistan to Pakistan. This was their aim, and that's why they participated enormously in creating and promoting the Taliban. In Afghanistan, women has no right so I say you took this right from us. And again you're killing us. We blamed first the Soviet Union, the communist regime, and of course America. We blame America. Autumn 1994. It is frequently reported that the Pakistani ISI created the Taliban. For instance, in 1996, CNN will report that the Taliban are widely alleged to be the creation of Pakistan's military intelligence, the ISI, which according to experts explains the Taliban's swift military success. White House counterterrorism czar Richard Clark will later claim that not only did the ISI create the Taliban, but they also facilitated connections between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda to help the Taliban achieve victory. The Wall Street Journal will state in November 2001, despite their clean shins and pressed uniforms, the ISI men are as deeply fundamentalist as any bearded fanatic. The ISI created the Taliban as their own instrument and still supported. Technically, the Taliban appeared to have actually started out on their own, but they were soon co-opted by the ISI and effectively became their proxy force. Pakistan Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto will later recall how ISI support grew in late 1994 and into early 1995. I became slowly, slowly sucked into it. Once I gave the go-ahead that they should get money, I don't know how much money they were ultimately given. I know it was a lot. It was just carte blanche. Udo was actually at odds with her own ISI agency and will later claim she eventually divorced the ISI, was giving them much more assistance than she authorized, including 
Pakistani military officers to lead them in the fighting. Pakistan's interior minister, Nasrullah Babar, who is said to have been a force behind the Taliban's creation. Two months later, the CIA supposedly backs the Taliban around the same time the Pakistan ISI starts strongly backing them. According to a senior Pakistani intelligence source interviewed by British journalist Simon Reeves, the CIA provides Pakistan's satellite information, giving the secret locations of scores of Soviet trucks that contain vast amounts of arms and ammunition. The trucks were hidden in caves at the end of the Afghan war. Pakistan then gives this information to the Taliban. The astonishing speed with which the Taliban conquered Afghanistan is explained by the tens of thousands of weapons found in these trucks. Journalist Steve Cole will later similarly note that at this time, the Taliban gained access to an enormous ISI-supplied weapons dump in caves near the border town of Spin Bulldog. It has enough weapons left over from the Soviet-Afghan war to supply tens of thousands of soldiers. Another account will point out that by early 1995, the Taliban was equipped with armored tanks, 10 combat airplanes, and other heavy weapons. They are thus able to conquer about a third of the country by February of 1995. According to the files of one European intelligence agency, these military advances can be explained mainly by strong military training, not only by the Pakistani services, but also by American military advisors working under humanitarian cover. Later in 1995, a Turkish news weekly will claim to have learned from a classified report given to the Turkish government that the CIA, ISI, and Saudi Arabia were all collaborating to build up the Taliban so they could quickly unite Afghanistan. By the summer, the Taliban were just starting to take over Afghanistan. They formed an important alliance with a powerful mafia of truck transporters based in Quetta, Pakistan, near the Afghanistan border, and Kandahar. The transporters pay hefty fees to the Taliban, who in return suppress any local warlords who interfere with the mafia's trade. Additionally, the Taliban ensures that roads are kept open so that the transporters can operate freely. Taliban expert and author Ahmed Rashid argues that the alliance between the Taliban and the Quetta Mafia becomes so successful that it ultimately destabilizes not only Afghanistan, but Pakistan as well. To the Taliban, the moderate Islamic state which Masood fought for and now defends is simply not Islamic enough. The Taliban are narrow-minded people. They know nothing of human rights and nothing of democracy. They don't accept any rights for women. In the provinces where they have taken power, they have closed the girls' schools, closed the cinemas, 
and smashed television sets. They even stopped ordinary games like football and volleyball. They claim these things are not Islamic. Without any real court or hearing, they've started to cut off people's hands and feet. After the Taliban takes control of the area around Kandahar, Afghanistan in September, prominent Persian Gulf state officials and businessmen, including high-ranking United Arab Emiratis and the Saudi government ministers, such as Saudi intelligence minister, Prince Turkey al-Faisal, frequently, secretly fly into Kandahar on state and private jets for hunting expeditions. General Wayne Downing, who will later serve as one of the President Bush's counterterrorism SARS, says they will go out and see Osama, spend some time with him, talk with him, you know, live out in the tents, eat the simple food, engage in falconing, some other pursuits, and ride horses. One noted visitor is Sheikh Mohammed ibn Rashid al Maktoum, the United Arab Emirati's defense minister and crown prince for the Emirati of Dubai. While there, some develop ties to the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and give them money. Both bin Laden and Taliban leader Mullah Mohammed Omar sometimes participate in these hunting trips. Former U.S. and Afghan officials suspect that the dignitaries, outbound jets, may also have smuggled out Al-Qaeda and Taliban personnel. On one occasion, the United States will decide not to attack bin Laden with a missile because he's falconing with important members of the United Emirates and Royal Family. The Los Angeles Times report that according to some 9-11 Commission members and US counterterrorism officials, Pakistan and Saudi Arabia cut secret deals with the Taliban and Osama bin Laden before 9-11. These deals date to the year, if not earlier, and will successfully shield both countries from Al-Qaeda attacks until long after 9-11. Saudi Arabia provides funds and equipment to the Taliban and probably directly to bin Laden and doesn't interfere with Al-Qaeda's efforts to raise money, recruit and train operatives and establish cells throughout the kingdom, commission and US officials will later say. Pakistan provides even more direct assistance its military and intelligence agencies often coordinating efforts with the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. The two countries will become targets of Al-Qaeda attacks only after they launch comprehensive efforts to eliminate the organization's domestic cells. In Saudi Arabia, such efforts won't begin until late 2003. However, such allegations go completely unmentioned in the 9-11 Commission's final report which only includes material unanimously agreed upon by the 10 congressional commissioners. Bin Laden existed in Afghanistan exactly 17 years before our government existed. We inherited him. And the fact is that such people were instigated by the CIA and by the government of America in that time to go and fight the Soviets. And such people were called the heroes of independence. And all of a sudden, they have changed now to, to terrorists. 
we don't say that we are defending terrorism, but we need to know whether they are really terrorists or not. The Associated Press will later report that the Enron Corporation bribes Taliban officials as part of a no-holds-barred bid to strike a deal for an energy pipeline in Afghanistan. Atul Davada, a senior director for Enron's international division, will later claim Enron had initiated contact with Taliban officials. Presumably, this effort began around 1996 when a power plant Enron was building in India ran into trouble and Enron began an attempt to supply it with natural gas via a planned pipeline through Afghanistan. In 1997, Enron executives privately meet with Taliban officials in Texas. They are given the red carpet treatment and promised a fortune if the deal goes through. It is alleged that Enron secretly employs CIA agents to carry out its dealing overseas. According to a CIA source, Enron proposed to pay the Taliban large sums of money in a tax on every cubic foot of gas and oil shipped through a pipeline they planned to build. This source claimed Enron paid more than $400 million for a feasibility study on the pipeline, and a large portion of that cost was payoffs to the Taliban. Enron continues to encourage the Taliban about the pipeline even after UNOCAL officially gives up on the pipeline in the wake of the Africa embassy bombings in 1998. An investigation after Enron's collapse in 2001 will determine that some of this payoff money ended up funding Al-Qaeda. In the spring of 1996, Al-Qaeda assumes control of Ariana Airlines, Afghanistan's national airline, for use in its illegal trade network. Passenger flights became few and erratic as planes are used to fly drugs, weapons, gold, personnel, primarily between Afghanistan, the United Arab Emirates, and Pakistan. The Emirati of Sharjah in the United Arab Emirates becomes a hub for Al-Qaeda drug and arms smuggling. Typically, large quantity of drugs are flown into Kandahar, Afghanistan to Sharjah, and large quantities of weapons are flown back to Afghanistan. About three to four flights run the route each day. Many weapons come from Victor Bout, a notorious Russian arms dealer based in Sharjah. Afghan taxes on opium production are paid in gold, and then the gold bullion is flown to Dubai and laundered into cash. Taliban officials regularly provide militants with false papers identifying them as Ariana Airlines employees so they can move freely around the world. A former National Security Council official would later claim that the United States is well aware at the time that Al-Qaeda agents regularly fly on Ariana Airlines, but the US fails to act for several years. The United States does press the United Arab Emirates for tighter banking controls, but moves delicately, not wanting to offend an ally in an already complicated relationship and little changes by September 11, 2001. Much of the money for the 9-11 hijackers flows through the Sharjah and United Arab Emirates channels there are also reports suggesting that Ariana Airlines 
might have been used to train Islamic militants as pilots. The illegal use of Ariana Airlines helps convince the United Nations to impose sanctions against Afghanistan in 1999, but the sanctions lack teeth and do not stop the airline. A second round of sanctions finally stops foreign Ariana Airline flights, but its charter flights and other charter services keep the illegal network running. By June of 96, author Gerald Posner claims that Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda leader Abu Zubaydah meet with senior members of Pakistan's military, including Mushaf Ali Mir, who becomes chief of Pakistan's Air Force in 2000. Bin Laden had moved to Afghanistan the month before. The Pakistanis offer bin Laden protection if he allies with the Taliban. The alliance proves successful and bin Laden calls it blessed by the Saudis who are already given money to both the Taliban and Al Qaeda. Perhaps not coincidentally, this meeting comes only one month after a deal is reportedly made that reaffirms Saudi support for Al Qaeda. The CIA and the ISI are well aware of the merger, but do nothing. Bin Laden is initially based in Jalalabad, which is free of Taliban control. But after the deal, he moves his base to Kandahar, which is the center of Taliban power. The NSA begin monitoring Bin Laden's satellite phone from this point forward. Ahmed Rashid corresponded for the Far Eastern Economic Review and the Daily Telegraph, conducts extensive investigative research in Afghanistan after the Taliban conquest of Kabul. As he will later write in his 2000 book, Taliban, Militant Islam, Oil and Fundamentalism in Southern Asia, he sees a massive regional polarization between the United States, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, and the Taliban on one side, and Iran, Russia, the centralized states, and the anti-Taliban alliance on the other. While some focused on whether there was a revival of the old CIA-ISI connection from the Afghan Jihad era, it became apparent to me that the strategy over pipelines had become the driving force behind Washington's interest in the Taliban, which in turn was prompting a counter-reaction from Russia and Iran. But exploring this was like entering a labyrinth where nobody spoke the truth or divulged their real motives or interests. It was the job of a detective rather than a journalist because there were few clues. Even gaining access to the real players in the game was difficult because policy was not being driven by politicians and diplomats, but by the secretive oil companies and intelligence services of the regional states. September 27th, 1996. The Taliban conquered Kabul, establishing control over much of Afghanistan. A surge in the Taliban's military successes at this time is later attributed to an increase in direct military assistance from Pakistan's ISI. The oil company Unical is hopeful that the Taliban will stabilize Afghanistan and allow its pipeline plans to go forward. According to some reports, preliminary agreement on the pipeline was reached between Taliban and Unical long before the fall of Kabul. Oil industry insiders say the dream of securing a pipeline across Afghanistan 
is the main reason why Pakistan, a close political ally of America's, has been so supportive of the Taliban and why America has quietly acquiesced in its conquest of Afghanistan. The 9-11 Commission will later conclude that some State Department diplomats are willing to give the Taliban a chance because it might be able to bring stability to Afghanistan, which would allow a UNICAL oil pipeline to be built through the country. When we started the thing, I, I didn't even know who the Taliban were. I, you know, I didn't know how radical they were or just what they were about. One of the things with the Taliban is, is they didn't have a clue about the oil and gas business. The idea was, was to bring them over and establish some credibility with the, with the uh, Taliban that, that we were a real company. Marty Miller secretly invited a group of Taliban leaders to UNICAL's headquarters in Sugarland, Texas. No press covered the event. I have some uh, statues that uh, I got in Indonesia, and they're figures of, of people carved out of ironwood, and the people are naked. And I had uh, one of these uh, uh, professors, Islamic professors, uh, check my house out, and when he saw these things, he said, hmm, I don't think that's gonna work with the Taliban. He said, what we'll do, he said, you got some black uh, trash bags? I said, yeah. He said, we'll put burkas on them. <laughs> so that's what we did. We put burkas on the statues. Marty Miller was vice president of oil company Unocal. They wanted to build a huge oil and gas pipeline through Taliban-controlled areas of Afghanistan. But how did these negotiations influence U.S. foreign policy towards... Meanwhile... Bin Laden establishes and maintains a major role in opium drug trade, soon after moving the base of his operations to Afghanistan from the Sudan. Opium money is vital to keeping the Taliban in power and funding Bin Laden's Al-Qaeda network. One report estimates that Bin Laden takes up to 10% of Afghanistan's drug trade by early 1999. This would give him a yearly income of about $1 billion out of six and a half to 10 billion in annual drug profits from within Afghanistan. The United States monitors Bin Laden's satellite phone starting in 1996 to, two, to 1998. And according to one newspaper, Bin Laden was heard advising Taliban leaders to promote heroin exports to the West. When Bin Laden moved from the Sudan to Afghanistan, he was forced to leave most of his personal fortune behind. Additionally, most of his training camps were in Sudan and those camps had to be left behind as well. But after the Taliban conquers most of Afghanistan and forms an alliance with Bin Laden, the Pakistan ISI persuades the Taliban to return to Bin Laden the Afghanistan training camps that he controlled in the early 1990s before his move to the Sudan. The ISI subsidizes the cost of the camps allowing Bin Laden to profit from the fees paid by those attending them. The ISI also uses the camps to train militants who want to fight against Indian forces in Kashmir. In 2001, a Defense Intelligence Agency agent will write about the al Badr camp at Zawahir Kili. Quote, 
position on the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. It was built by Pakistani contractors funded by the Pakistan Inter-Services Intelligence Directorate and protected under the patronage of a local and influential Jadran tribal leader, Jalaluddin Haqqani of the Haqqani Network. The agent writes, however, the real host in that facility was the Pakistan ISI. If this was later to be bin Laden's base, then serious questions are raised by the early relationship between bin Laden and Pakistan's ISI. By 1997, UNICAL pays University of Nebraska $900,000 to set up a training facility near Osama bin Laden's Kandahar compound to train 400 Afghan teachers, electricians, carpenters, and pipe fitters in anticipation of using them for their pipeline in Afghanistan. 150 students are already attending classes in southern Afghanistan. UNICAL is playing University of Nebraska professor Thomas Gutierrez to develop the training program. Gutierrez travels to Afghanistan and meets with Taliban leaders and also arranges for some Taliban leaders to visit the United States around this time. It will later be revealed that the CIA paid Gutierrez to head a program at the University of Nebraska that created textbooks for Afghanistan promoting violence and jihad. Gutierrez will continue to work with the Taliban after UNICAL officially cuts off ties with them. For instance, he will host some Taliban leaders visiting the United States in 1999. Months before, Uzbekistan and the CIA secretly create a joint counter-terrorist strike force funded and trained by the CIA. This force conducts joint covert operations against the Taliban and Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. In February of 1999, radical Muslims fail in an attempt to assassinate the leader of Uzbekistan. Following this, the CIA is allowed to step up their secret operations in Uzbekistan. The CIA and NSA are allowed to install monitoring equipment to intercept Taliban and Al-Qaeda communications. Intelligence is shared and Uzbek military bases are made available for small-scale CIA operations. Uzbekistan borders Afghanistan to the north. By contrast, the other nations surrounding Afghanistan, like Iran, Pakistan, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, and Tajikistan, do not cooperate with the US on these matters very much at all. Data collection by the CIA's monitor of bin Laden satellite phone provides invaluable data, including an Al-Qaeda communications hub located in Sana'a, Yemen. A bug was placed in summer of 96, where they would monitor this house. This also provides additional context to the NSA, including former Al-Qaeda leaders and military advisors, such as Abu Zubaydah, Khalid al-Midar, Nawaf al-Hazmi, Walid bin Atash, and other Al-Qaeda contacts. The NSA would monitor the house for five years. Meanwhile, the CIA had confronted two Syrian Al-Qaeda contacts in Germany, Mohammed Haydar Zamar and Marmoun Darkanzali, to recruit them as high-level confidential informants. 
the CIA allegedly is also monitoring cell phones of Zamar as well. These two men are influencers of three men who go on to have roles in the 9-11 attacks, Marwan al-Shehi, Muhammad Atta, and Ramzi bin al-Shib. Atta and al-Shehi would travel to the United States in 2000 as Israeli intelligence monitors their every move while living in Florida, New York, and New Jersey. By July of 98, Taliban officials allegedly meet with Prince Turkey al-Faisal, head of Saudi intelligence, to continue talks concerning the Taliban's ouster of bin Laden from Afghanistan. Reports on the location of this meeting and the deal under discussion differ. According to some reports, including documents exposed in a later lawsuit, this meeting takes place in Kandahar. Those present include Prince Turki al-Faisal, head of Saudi Arabian intelligence, notorious Taliban leaders from Pakistan and Afghanistan, senior officers from the ISI, and Osama bin Laden. According to these reports, Saudi Arabia agrees to give the Taliban in Pakistan several hundreds of millions of dollars, and in return, bin Laden promises no attacks against Saudi Arabia. The Saudis also agree to ensure that requests for the extradition of al-Qaeda members will be blocked and promise to block demands by other countries to close down bin Laden's Afghan training camps. Saudi Arabia had previously given money to the Taliban and bribed money to bin Laden, but this ups the ante. A few weeks after the meeting, Prince Turkey sent 400 new pickup trucks to the Taliban. At least $200 million will follow. Author Gerald Posner gives a similar account and said to have come from a high US government official and adds that Al-Qaeda leader Abu Zubaydah had attended this meeting and noted that reports of this meeting seemingly contradict reports of a meeting the month before between Turkey and the Taliban in which the Taliban had agreed to get rid of bin Laden. On August 20th, 1998, hours before the US missile strike meant to assassinate bin Laden, he is warned that his satellite phone is being used to track his location and he turns it off. A former CIA official later alleges that the warning came from supporters working for Pakistan intelligence, the ISI. It has been claimed that a tracking beacon was placed in bin Laden's phone when a replacement battery was brought to him in May of 98. The US military only gives Pakistan about 10 minutes advance to notice that cruise missiles were entering their airspace on their way to Afghanistan. This was done to make sure the missiles wouldn't be misidentified and shut down. But Pakistan was apparently aware several hours earlier as soon as the missiles were launched. Counterterrorism czar Richard Clark later claims he was promised by the Navy that it would fire their missiles from below the ocean surface. However, in fact, many destroyers fired their missiles from the surface. Clark added, not only did they use surface ships, they brought additional ones in because every captain wants to be able to say he fired the cruise missiles. As a result, the ISI had many hours to alert Osama bin Laden. Clark says he believes that if the ISI wanted to capture bin Laden or to tell us where he was, they could have done so with little effort. 
They did not cooperate with us because ISI saw Al-Qaeda as helpful in pressuring India, particularly in Kashmir. Furthermore, bin Laden cancels a meeting with other Al-Qaeda leaders after finding out that 180 US diplomats were being immediately withdrawn from Pakistan on a chartered plane. Thanks to these warnings, he is hundreds of miles away from his training camps when the missiles hit some hours later. In 1999, the US will intercept communications suggesting that Hamid Gull, the ISI director in the early 1990s, played a role in forewarning the Taliban about the missile strike, which may even have predating the firing of the cruise missiles. In the wake of the US missile strike in Afghanistan, the Taliban is under intense pressure to turn over bin Laden or face further attacks. Several days later, top Taliban leader Mohammed Mullah Omar announces that he does not know where bin Laden is, except that he is no longer in Afghanistan. Journalist Kathy Gannon will later claim that the Pakistan army secretly gave bin Laden sanctuary in Pakistan at this time to ease US pressure on the Taliban. Taliban fighters traveling with bin Laden will later tell Gannon about a convoy of about 20 vehicles that brought bin Laden to Chariot, a commando training base in Northwest Pakistan. He stayed there with his bodyguard and some senior Taliban leaders for several weeks. Gannon will later comment, Mullah Omar needed some breathing space and Pakistan provided it. Three days later, after being axed by Taliban leader Mullah Omar, the US sends the Taliban a cable about bin Laden's activities. The cable state, quote, we have detailed and solid evidence that Osama bin Laden has been engaged and is still engaged in planning, organizing, and funding acts of international terror, end quote. However, the sanctions on the various plots in which bin Laden is supposed to have been involved are brief and do not include supporting evidence. For example, the Yemen bombing in 1992 is described in a sentence Bin Laden and his network conspired to kill US servicemen in Yemen who were on their way to participate in the humanitarian mission Operation Restore Hope in Somalia in 1992. Afghanistan's Supreme Court will later acquit Bin Laden of his involvement in the East Africa embassy bombings in 1988 because of the United States refusal to provide the court with the requested evidence. By this time, U.S. intelligence has documented many links between the ISI, the Taliban, and Al-Qaeda. It is discovered that the ISI maintains about eight stations inside Afghanistan, which are staffed by active or retired ISI officers. The CIA has learned that ISI officers at about the colonel level regularly meet with bin Laden and his associates to coordinate access to Al-Qaeda training camps in Afghanistan. The CIA suspects that the ISI is giving money and or equipment to bin Laden, but they find no evidence of direct ISI involvement in Al-Qaeda's overseas attacks. The ISI generally uses the training camps to train operatives to fight a guerrilla war in the disputed Indian province of Kashmir. But while these ISI officers are following Pakistani policy in a broad sense, the CIA believes the ISI has little direct control over them. One senior Clinton administration official will later state that it was assumed 
that those ISI individuals were perhaps profiteering, engaged in the drug running or running the arms running themselves. One US official aware of CIA reporting at this time later comments that Clinton's senior policy team saw an incredibly unholy alliance that was not only supporting all the terrorism that would be directed against us, but also threatening to provoke a nuclear war in Kashmir. According to Saudi intelligence minister, Prince Turki al-Faisal, he participates in a second meeting with Taliban leader Mohammed Mullah Omar in September. Supposedly, earlier in the year, Omar made a secret deal with Turkey to hand bin Laden over to Saudi Arabia, and Turkey is now ready to finalize the deal. Pakistan ISI Director General Nassim Rana is at the meeting as well. But in the wake of the U.S. missile bombing of Afghanistan, Omar yells at Turkey and denies ever having made the deal. Turkey leaves empty-handed. However, other reports stand in complete contrast to this, suggesting that early in the year, Turkey had concluded with the ISI to support bin Laden and not capture him. However, a meeting of high Taliban officials from Pakistan have met with al-Mullah Omar in Afghanistan, suggesting that bin Laden was indeed bringing attention of US intelligence and the State Department to a country that they were fighting against the Northern Alliance to take control of. They didn't need the headache. However, a decision was made reluctantly. Bin Laden would stay with the Taliban, but he would be barred from having any more interviews with Western media outlets. In the first week of October of 99, Julie Sirs, a military analyst for the Defense Intelligence Agency, travels to Afghanistan. Fluent in local languages and knowledgeable about the culture, she had made a previous undercover trip there in October of 97. She is surprised that the CIA was not interested in sending in agents after the failed missile attack on bin Laden in August of 98. So she returns at this time. Traveling undercover, she meets with Northern Alliance leader Ahmed Shah Massoud. She sees a terrorist training camp in Taliban-controlled territory. Sirs claims that the Taliban's brutal regime was being kept in power significantly by bin Laden's money, plus the narcotics trade, while Massoud's resistance was surviving on a shoestring. With even a little aid to the Afghan resistance, we could have pushed the Taliban out of power. But there was great reluctance by the State Department and the CIA to undertake that. She partly blames the interest of US government and the oil companies, Unical, to see the Taliban achieve political stability to enable the trans-Afghanistan pipeline. She claims Massoud told me he had proof that Unical had provided money that helped the Taliban take Kabul. She also states that the State Department didn't want to have anything to do with Afghan resistance or even politically to reveal that there was any viable option to the Taliban. After two weeks, she returns with a treasure trove of maps, photographs, and interviews. By interviewing captured Al-Qaeda operatives, she learns that the official Afghanistan airline, Ariana Airlines, is being used to ferry weapons and drugs and learns that bin Laden goes hunting with rich Saudis and top Taliban officials. When she returns from Afghanistan, her material is confiscated and she is accused of being a spy. Said one senior colleague, 
she had gotten the proper clearances to go and she came back with valuable information. But high level officials were so intent on getting rid of her, the last thing they wanted was to pay attention to any of the information she had. Later, she is cleared of wrongdoing, but her security clearance is pulled. She eventually quits the DIA in frustration. Congressman Dana Rohrbacher will later claim that the main DIA official behind the punishment of SIRS is Lieutenant General Patrick Hughes, who later becomes one of the top officials running the Department of Homeland Security under US President George Bush. CIA already has a network of local agents in Afghanistan by this time. However, in this year, there was serious effort to increase the network throughout Afghanistan and other countries for the purpose of capturing bin Laden and his deputies. Many are put on the CIA's payroll, including some Taliban military leaders. Many veterans of the Soviet war in the 1980s who worked with the CIA then are recruited again. All of these recruits are kept secret from Pakistan intelligence because of their support of the Taliban and Al Qaeda. CIA Director George Tenet will later state that by 9-11, a map would show that these collection programs and human networks were in place in such numbers to nearly cover Afghanistan. This array means that when the military campaign to topple the Taliban and destroy Al Qaeda beginning in October of 2001, they were able to support it with enormous body of information and a large stable of assets. However, apparently none of these sources are close enough to bin Laden to know about his movements in advance. The failure to strike bin Laden in February of 99, despite having usually good intelligence about his location, causes strong resentment in the US intelligence community. It is believed that the United States held its first because of the presence of royalty from the United Arab Emirates, but some felt these royals were legitimate targets as well, since they were associating with bin Laden there. Further, intelligence at this time suggests the planes carrying these royals to Afghanistan were also bringing weapons to the Taliban in defiance of United Nations bans. Michael Scheuer, head of the CIA's bin Laden unit at the time, is particularly upset. He reportedly sends a series of emails to others in the CIA that are widely circulated. His anger at this decision not to strike a bin Laden will apparently contribute to him losing his position, leading the bin Laden unit a few months later. Some resentment is directed at counterism czar Richard Clark, who voted against the missile strike. Clark was known to be close to the United Arab Emirates royal family. He negotiated many arms deals and other arrangements with them, including a $6 billion deal in May of 1998 to buy F-16 fighters from the United States. In March of 99, Clark calls Emirati royals and asks them to stop visiting bin Laden. However, he apparently did not have permission for the CIA to make this call. Within one week, the camp where the Emiratis and bin Laden met is abandoned. CIA officers are irate feeling that this ruined the chance to strike a bin Laden if he made a return visit to the location. During the evening hours of September 7, August 17, 1999, a group of illegal arms merchants, including an ISI agent with foreknowledge of 9-11, had met in a New York restaurant the month before. 
This same group meets at this time in a West Palm Beach, Florida warehouse, and it is shown Stinger missiles as part of a Stinger operation. U.S. intelligence soon discovers connections between the two in the groups. Raja Ghulam Abbas, known as R.J. Abbas, and Muhammad Malik, and Islamic militant groups in Kashmir, where the ISI assist them in fighting against India and the Taliban. Muhammad Malik suggests in this meeting that the Stingers will be used in Kashmir or Afghanistan. His colleague, Dia Motion, also says Abbas has direct connections to dignitaries and bin Laden. Abbas also wants heavy water connections for a dirty bomb or other material to make a nuclear weapon. He says he will bring a Pakistani nuclear scientist to the United States to inspect the material. According to Dick Stoltz, a federal undercover agent posing as a black market arms dealer, one of the Pakistanis at the warehouse claims he is working for A.Q. Khan, a Pakistan nuclear scientist. Khan is considered the father of Pakistan's nuclear weapons program and also the head of an illegal network exporting nuclear technology to rogue nations. Government informant Randy Glass passes these warnings on before 9-11, but he claims that the complaints were ordered sanitized by the highest levels of government. And in June of 2002, the U.S. secretly indicts Abbas, but apparently they aren't trying very hard to find him. In August of 2002, MSNBC is easily able to contact Abbas in Pakistan and speak to him by telephone. In the winter of 99, a covert four-man CIA and NSA team arrives in the part of Afghanistan controlled by the Northern Alliance. They set up a listing post within range of an Al-Qaeda's tactical radios. The Northern Alliance is shown how to run it, and then the team leaves. In March of 2000, CIA agent Gary Bernstein leads a small CIA team into Northern Alliance territory. While there, they improved the existing listing post and set up a new one closer to Taliban-controlled territory. The U.S. makes little use of the intelligence gained from these intercepts, leading Northern Alliance leader Massoud to conclude that the U.S. is not serious about getting bin Laden. By the start of 2000, U.S. intelligence had a particular focus on Daruta camp, one of al-Qaeda's training camps in Afghanistan. This simple camp near Jalalabad draws attention because of intelligence gathered during the last year, indicating that al-Qaeda is experimenting with poisons and chemical weapons. The CIA has inserted a special device in the vicinity that can take high quality photographs of the camp from over 10 miles away. Sometime in late January, the CIA learns that bin Laden had arrived in the camp. They passed this information on to Ahmad Shah Massoud and his Northern Alliance, who are fighting the Taliban and Al-Qaeda at this time. Massoud dispatches a small team of mules to get near the camp and fire rockets at bin Laden. However, when Massoud tells the CIA about this, the CIA lawyers are alarmed. They don't want the CIA legally complicit if the operation kills innocent civilians, and they go to Massoud to withdraw his team. However, suspicions abound. What do the CIA care about killing innocent civilians in a country in which they have killed hundreds of thousands? But due to poor communications, the team goes ahead anyway and apparently shells the camp. However, bin Laden is not hurt. 
and the incident passes without notice. A new policy is drawn up allowing the CIA to assist Massoud on an operation. The primary purpose of the operation is to kill bin Laden or one of his top assistants. Otherwise, the United States officially remains neutral in the war between the Northern Alliance and the Taliban. No help ever comes from the CIA. CIA Director Tenet tells a Senate committee in open session of February 2nd that bin Laden wants to strike further blows against America. He points out that the close links between Al-Qaeda and Egyptian Islamic Jihad and says this is part of an intricate web of alliances among Sunni extremists worldwide, including North Africans, radical Palestinians, Pakistanis, and Central Asians. He points out ties between the drug traffickers and the Taliban and says there is ample evidence that Islamic extremists such as the Osama bin Laden use profits from the drug trade to support their terrorist campaign. But there is no mention of Pakistan's support by Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, despite CIA knowledge of this. This would mean that the CIA is involved at some level. Instead, he claims that Iran is the most active state sponsor of terrorism. Additionally, he does not mention that bin Laden is capable of planning attacks inside the United States, even though he told that to Congress in a closed session six months earlier. To this point, the NSA still continues to monitor and listen to the phone calls incoming and outgoing at the Yemen hub. This operation remains secret absent the CIA. The CIA is conducting human intelligence and neither agency shares any of its data with the FBI or State Department officials. Most of the information is currently classified. Meanwhile, Israeli and Saudi intelligence monitors Al-Qaeda assets inside the United States without any knowledge of their existence by the White House or the FBI as well. ISI director and leading Taliban supporter, Lieutenant General Mahmoud Ahmed visits Washington on April 4th of 2000. He meets officials at the CIA and the White House. In a message meant for both Pakistan and the Taliban, US officials tell him that Al Qaeda has killed Americans and people who support these people will be treated as our enemies. The US threatens to support the Northern Alliance who are still engaged in a civil war with the Taliban. A short time later, Mahmoud goes to Afghanistan and delivers the message to Taliban leader Mohammed Mullah Omar. However, no actual U.S. action, military or otherwise, is taken against either the Taliban or Pakistan. Author Steve Cole later notes that these U.S. threats were just bluffs since the Clinton administration was not seriously considering a change of policy and neither was the Bush administration. In the wake of the USS call bombing on October 12th, Clinton administration officials hold a high-level meeting to discuss what the US response should be. The meeting attendees include Richard Clark, Defense Secretary William Cohn, CIA Director George Tenet, Attorney General Janet Reno, Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, Deputy National Security Advisor Jim Steinberg, and State Department Coordinator for Counterterrorism Michael Sheenan. Clark suggests that Al-Qaeda was behind the attacks. There was no hard evidence of this yet, but he argues that the attack matches their profile and capabilities. He presents a detailed plan, which he'd been working on before the bombing to level all the Al-Qaeda training camps in Afghanistan, 
as well as key Taliban buildings in such towns as Kandahar and Kabul. Janet Reno, Janet Reno argues that there's no clear evidence yet who is behind the bombing. If there is such evidence, any US action should not be for retaliation, but only for self-protection against future attacks. George Tenet will suspect that Al-Qaeda is behind the bombing, but also wants to wait until an investigation determines that before acting. William Cohn is against any counterattack, and Clark will later recall that Cohn saying at the meeting that the coal bombing was not sufficient provocation. Sheehan will later say that the entire Pentagon was generally against a counterattack. Many also argue that if Afghanistan is attacked and Bin Laden is not killed, he could emerge as a greater hero in the Muslim world just as he did after the 1998 US missile attack. Clark argues that the continual creation of new trained militants in Afghanistan needs to stop. And if Bin Laden is killed, that would merely be a bonus. At the end of the meeting, the highest ranking officials cast votes and seven vote against Clark's counter-strike plan while only Clark votes in favor of it. After the meeting, Sheehan will meet with Clark and express frustration with the outcome saying, what's it going to take to get them to hit Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan? Does Al-Qaeda have to hit the Pentagon? The heads of the US military and the Joint Chiefs of Staff have become frustrated by the lack of CIA disinformation operations to create dissent amongst the Taliban. And at the very end of the Clinton administration, they begin to develop a Taliban disinformation project of their own, which is to go into effect in 2001. When they are briefed, the Defense Department's new leaders kill the project. According to Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman Henry Shelton, Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld and Defense Sec Deputy Defense Secretary Paul Wolfowitz were against the Joint Staff having the lead on this. They considered this a distraction from their core military missions. As far as Rumsfeld is concerned, this terrorism thing was out there, but it didn't happen today. So maybe it belongs lower on the list. So it gets diffused over a long period of time. Taliban envoy Rasmultullah Hashmiri meets with reporters in March of 2001, middle ranking State Department bureaucrats and private Afghanistan experts in Washington. He carries a gift carpet and a letter from Afghan leader Mohammed Mullah Omar for President Bush. He discusses turning bin Laden over, but the US wants to be, ha want to be handed bin Laden and the Taliban wants to turn him over to some third country. A CIA official later would say, we never heard what they were trying to say. We had no common language. Ours was give up bin Laden. They were saying, do something to help us give him up. I have no doubts they wanted to get rid of him. He was a pain in the neck. Others claimed that the Taliban were never sincere. About 20 more meetings on giving up bin Laden take place up until 9-11. All are fruitless. Allegedly, Hashimi also proposes that the Taliban would hold bin Laden in one location long enough for the US to locate and kill him. However, the offer is refused. This report, however, comes from Layla Helms, daughter of CIA Director Richard Helms. While it's interesting that this information comes out before 9-11, one must be skeptical since Helms' job was public relations for the Taliban. 
By April of 2000, journalist Hamid Mir talks to Afghan warlord Gulbuddin Hekmatar, who is living in exile in Iran at the time. Hekmatar predicts that the Taliban will fall by the end of the year. Mir will later recall that he was telling me that the Americans are attacking Afghanistan. Taliban government will fall, and then we'll continue our jihad against the Americans. Hekmatar is opposed to the Taliban, but openly supports bin Laden. He tells Hamid Mir, Osama bin Laden is a great man, and I support his ideology. I support his objectives. He is a good friend of mine, and he's a real Mujahideen. A senior Taliban official will make a similar prediction to Mir before 9-11 and hint the justification for the US attack would be a major attack against US interests. On April 6, 2001, Ahmed Shah Massoud addresses the European Parliament. If President Bush doesn't help us, these terrorists will damage the United States and Europe very soon. A classified US intelligence document states that Massoud's intelligence staff is aware that the attack against the US will be on a scale larger than the 1998 embassy bombings which killed over 200 people and injured thousands. Masood also meets privately with some CIA officials while in Europe. He tells them that his guerrilla war against the Taliban is faltering. And unless the United States gives a significant amount of aid, the Taliban will conquer all of Afghanistan, but no more aid is forthcoming. The support which Taliban are receiving from Pakistan is in all forms, military, political, and economy, economic. When I am talking about the military support, it is not just arms and ammunitions. It is by sending uh, military personnel, regular troops, advisors in, in the whole aspects of it. Uh, we, are, uh, we have good relations with all our neighboring countries in throughout the region, uh, and we are grateful for their political support for our peaceful cause, uh, and also for their uh, contribution in the humanitarian field. But what you just mentioned about military support, it is a claim by Pakistanis, and that's how they want to put a cover on, on, on the support which they continue uh, to give to the Taliban. Two weeks later, on April 24, 2001, the Bush administration finally has its first deputy secretary level meeting on terrorism. According to counterterrorism czar Richard Clark, he advocates that the Northern Alliance needs to be supported in the war against the Taliban and the predator drone flights need to resume over Afghanistan so bin Laden can be targeted. However, Deputy Defense Secretary Paul Wolfowitz says the focus on Al-Qaeda is wrong. He states, I just don't understand why we are beginning by talking about this one man, Bin Laden. Who cares about the little terrorist in Afghanistan? Wolfowitz insists the focus should be on Iraqi-sponsored terrorism instead. He claims the 1993 attack on the World Trade Center must have been done with help from Iraq and rejects the CIA's assertion that there has been no Iraqi-sponsored terrorism against the U.S., since 1993. A spokesman for Wolfowitz later claims that Clark's account is a fabrication. However, Wolfowitz repeats these sentiments immediately after 9-11 and tries to argue that the US should attack Iraq. Deputy Defense Secretary of State Richard Armitage agrees with Clark that Al-Qaeda is an important threat. 
Deputy National Security Advisor Steve Hadley chairing the meeting, brokers a compromise between Wolfowitz and the others. The group agrees to hold additional meetings focusing on Al-Qaeda, first in June and July, but then later look at other terrorism, including any Iraqi terrorism. Vice President Cheney's Chief of Staff, Libby Scooter Libby, Louis Scooter Libby, and Deputy CIA Director John McLaughlin also attend the hour-long meeting. The U.S. State Department issues its annual report on terrorism. The report cites the role of the Taliban in Afghanistan and notes the Taliban continue to provide safe haven for international terrorists, particularly Saudi exile Osama bin Laden and his network. However, as CNN describes it, unlike last year's report, bin Laden's al-Qaeda organization is mentioned, but the 2001 report does not contain a photograph of bin Laden or a lengthy description of him or the group. A senior State Department official told CNN that the U.S. government made a mistake last year by focusing too tightly on bin Laden and personalizing terrorism, describing parts of the elephant, but not the whole beast. June 13, 2001, Operation Diamondback, a sting operation undercovering an attempt to buy weapons illegally for the Taliban, bin Laden, and others, ends with a number of arrests. An Egyptian named Dia Motion and a Pakistani named Mohammed Malik are arrested and accused of attempting to buy Stinger missiles, nuclear weapons components, and other sophisticated military weaponry for the Pakistan ISI. Malik appears to have links to important Pakistan officials and Kashmiri militants. Meanwhile, Dia Motion claims a connection to a man who is very connected to the Taliban and funded by bin Laden. Some other ISI agents came to Florida on several occasions to negotiate, but they escaped being arrested. They wanted to pay partially in heroin. One mentioned that the World Trade Center would be destroyed. That would be coming from RJ Abbas. These ISI agents said some of their purchases would go to the Taliban in Afghanistan or militants associated with bin Laden. Both Malik and Motion lived in Jersey City, New Jersey. Motion pleads guilty after 9-11, but remarkably, even though he was apparently willing to supply America's enemies with sophisticated weapons, even nuclear weapons technology, Motion was sentenced to just 30 months in prison. Malik's case appears to have been dropped, and reporters find him working in a store in Florida less than a year after the trial ended. Malik's court files remained completely sealed, and in Motion's court case, prosecutors removed references to Pakistan from public filings because of diplomatic concerns. Also arrested are Kevin Ingram and Walter Cabbage. Ingram pleaded guilty to laundering $350,000 and he is sentenced to 18 months in prison. Ingram was a former senior investment banker with Deutsche Bank, but resigned in January of 99 after his division suffered countly costly losses. Walter Cabbage, a pilot with a minor role in the plot, is given the longest sentence, 33 months in prison. Informant Randy Glass plays a key role in this thing and has 13 felony fraud charges against him reduced as a result, serving only seven months in prison. Federal agents involved in the case later expressed puzzlement that Washington higher-ups did not make the case a higher priority, pointing out that bin Laden could have gotten a nuclear bomb if the deal was for real. Agents on the case complained that the FBI did not make the case a counterterrorism matter, which would improve bureaucratic backing and open access to FBI information 
and U.S. intelligence from around the world. Federal agents frequently couldn't get prosecutors to approve wiretaps. Randy Glass would later say, wouldn't you think that there should have been a wiretap on Dia Mosin's phone and Malik's phone? An FBI supervisor in Miami refused to front money for the sting, forcing agents to use money from U.S. Customs and even Glass's own money to help keep the sting going. Meanwhile, the FBI head of counterterrorism in New York, John O'Neill, privately discusses White House obstruction in his bin Laden investigation. O'Neill says, the main obstacles to investigate Islamic terrorism were U.S. oil corporate interests and the role played by Saudi Arabia in it. All the answers, everything they needed to dismantle Osama bin Laden's organization can be found in Saudi Arabia. O'Neill also believes the White House is obstructing his investigation of bin Laden because they are still keeping the idea of a pipeline deal with the Taliban open. August 31st, 2001. Prince Turkey al-Faisal, head of Saudi Arabia's intelligence division, is replaced. No explanation is given. He is replaced by Nawaf bin Abdulaziz, his nephew and the king's brother, who has no background in intelligence whatsoever. The Wall Street Journal later reports that the timing of Turkey's removal, August 31st, and its Taliban connection raised the question. Did the Saudi regime know that bin Laden was planning his attack against the U.S.? The current view among Saudi watchers is probably not, but that the House of Saud might have heard rumors that something was planned, although they did not know what or when. An interesting and possibly significant detail, Prince Sultan, the defense minister, had been due to visit Japan in early September, but canceled his trip for no apparent reason less than two days before an alleged planned departure. It will later come out that Turkey's removal takes place during a time of great turmoil in the relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia, though it is not known if there is a connection. President Bush's cabinet rank advisors discussed terrorism on September 4th for the second of only two times before 9-11. National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice chairs the meeting, but neither President Bush nor Vice President Cheney attends. Richard Clark later says that in this meeting, he and CIA Director Tenet speak passionately about the Al-Qaeda threat. No one disagrees that the threat is serious. Secretary of State Colin Powell outlines a plan to put pressure on Pakistan to stop supporting Al-Qaeda. Defense Secretary Don Brumsfeld appears to be more interested in Iraq. The only debate is over whether to fly the armed predator drone over Afghanistan to attack Al-Qaeda. Clark's earlier plans to roll back Al-Qaeda first submitted on January 25, 2001, have been discussed and honed in many meetings and are now presented as a formal national security presidential directive. The directive is apparently approved, though the process of turning it into official policy is still not done. There is later disagreement over just how different the directive is presented from Clark's earlier plans to now. For instance, some claim the directive aims not just to roll back Al-Qaeda, but also to eliminate it altogether. However, Clark notes that even though he wanted to use eliminate, the approved directive merely aims to significantly erode Al-Qaeda. The word eliminate is only added after 9-11. Clark will later say 
that the plan adopted on September 4th is basically what I proposed on January 25th. So the time in between was completely wasted. September 9th, General Ahmed Shah Massoud, the leader of the Northern Alliance, is assassinated by two Al-Qaeda agents posing as Moroccan journalists. Though it is not widely reported, the Northern Alliance releases a statement the next day suggesting Ahmed Shah Massoud was the target of an assassination attempt organized by the ISI and Osama bin Laden. This suggests that the ISI may also have prior knowledge of the 9-11 planes attack along with the Taliban. Shortly thereafter, future 9-11 Commissioner Bob Kerry will say that before 9-11, there's no question that the Taliban was getting money from the Saudis. And there's no question that they got much more from that from the Pakistan government. Their motive is a secondary issue for us. He claims this finding is based almost entirely on information known to the US government before 9-11. All we're doing is looking at classified documents from our own government, not from some magical source. So we knew what was going on, but we did nothing. However, the 9-11 Commission will leave such material out of its final report and in fact make the claim in its last staff statement that there was no convincing evidence that any government financially supported Al-Qaeda before 9-11 in direct opposition of the overwhelming evidence. September 11, 2001. George Tennant and Kofor Black two days later, the director of CIA's counterterrorism center meet at 9.30 a.m. in the White House Situation Room with President Bush and the National Security Council. Tenet presents a plan for tracking down Osama bin Laden, toppling the Taliban in Afghanistan and confronting terrorism worldwide. According to journalist Bob Woodward, the plan involves bringing together expanded intelligence, gathering resources, sophisticated technology, agency paramilitary teams, and opposition forces in Afghanistan in a classic covert action. Black gives a presentation describing the effectiveness of a covert action, codenamed Jawbreaker. He says they will need to go after the Taliban as well as Al-Qaeda, as the two were joined at the hip. He wants the mission to begin as soon as possible and adds, when we're through with them, they will have flies walking across their eyeballs. According to Woodward, no one else in the room, including Tennant, believed that it was possible. Black also warns the president, Americans are going to die. How many? I don't know. Could be a lot. That's war. Bush responded, that's what we're here to win, no matter the cost. October 7, 2001. The U.S. military, with British support, began a bombing campaign against Taliban forces, officially launching Operation Enduring Freedom. Canada, Australia, Germany, and France pledged future support. The United States' response was what bin Laden wanted all along, starting with the U.S. embassy bombings in Kenya and Tanzania on August 7, 1998. However, Clinton held serve until Al-Qaeda decided to bring the conflict inside their borders. 
but the intelligence community had previous warnings, going back to 1996, that Al-Qaeda assets were inside the country. However, the United States, along with the Taliban, had previous financial prospects with full approval from Clinton to use UNOCAL as the driver to begin oil pipelines and maybe even into the Caspian Sea. With the deal soured, the Taliban suddenly became victim of economic sanctions for supporting bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, where it wasn't a problem before. Even during these meetings with the Saudi government and head of the GID, Prince Turkey bin Faisal, bin Laden would be put on trial in a Muslim court and not rendition to the West. Clinton responded by bombing the Shatila pharmaceutical factory in the Sudan and alleged that Al-Qaeda camps in Afghanistan, hereby revoking any deal to hand over bin Laden in the future. However, with so much classified by the NSA, the CIA, the Pakistan ISI, the Israeli Mossad, and the Saudi GID, what will not be known now will later show that not everything between 1994 and 2001 is what appears to be seen, which begs the question, what did they hide from us and why? <laughs>